The night of October 22, 1844, was nearly silent. 62-year-old William Miller could only hear the quiet rustling of clothing, the scuffing of shoes against the rock beneath their feet, but nothing more. No trumpets sounded, no angels sang, and no deathly crackle of fire swept across the earth. It was supposed to be the second advent, the moment of Christ's return. William told the whole world to await this day. He sensed the presence of his children surrounding him, and he couldn't turn to look at them. He couldn't meet their eyes. Suddenly, William heard a noise behind him, but it was only the sound of retreating footsteps. Friends, neighbors, people were giving up and leaving. William's face burned with shame. His body suddenly seemed very heavy. He felt very old and very tired, and he wondered if he even had the strength to return to the farmhouse. He decided that he wouldn't try to go back yet. He couldn't bear the thought of trudging off to bed as if it were any other night. He'd wait longer until dawn. Perhaps the warmth of the morning sun would make his failure easier to bear. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we talked about the early life of William Miller. In 1818, he embraced evangelical Christianity after years of religious skepticism. We discussed how his faith prompted him to decode the Bible. Eventually, his studies led him to the conclusion that Jesus would return to Earth in the year 1843. This week, we'll explore how William turned his new belief system into a thriving religious faction with the help of several close supporters. We'll also see how this movement faltered when it became clear that William's predictions were wrong. We'll have all this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
At 34 years old, New York farmer William Miller began a serious study of the Bible, and his work altered the course of the rest of his life. He looked at Scripture because he wanted to find evidence of God's existence. By the time he finished, he wasn't only certain of God's presence, he was convinced that Jesus Christ would soon return. William crafted an elaborate timeline, which he pieced together by analyzing biblical prophecies and comparing them to real historical events. Once he'd settled on this timeline, he determined that Jesus would arrive on or before 1843. God would then cleanse the earth by burning up all the sinners in holy fire. Once their bodies were destroyed, their souls would remain in a state of limbo while awaiting their final judgment. According to William's vision, true Christians would be spared this fate and would ascend to heaven. They would remain with Jesus for a thousand years. Following the limbo period, the wicked souls would be judged and banished to hell. With the wicked purged, the saved would then return to earth along with Jesus to establish a new holy kingdom of the righteous that would last forever. William's predictions had immediate implications for the near future. Yet he kept them to himself for more than a decade. It wasn't until 1831, with the apocalypse only 12 years away, that 49-year-old William preached his message to congregations near his hometown of Lowhampton, New York. His audiences didn't always know what to make of William when they first saw him. At first glance, he didn't ooze charisma. One newspaper described him as a man about 5 feet 7 inches in height, very thick-set, a little bald, full of wrinkles, and his head shakes as though he was slightly afflicted with the palsy. He wasn't exactly a powerful orator either. When he preached, it wasn't his magnetism that convinced people. It was his sincerity. Anyone who heard him speak, whether they believed him or not, was left with the impression that William truly believed everything he said. More than that, he didn't talk like a fanatic. He spoke with the candor of a kindly old farmer looking out for his neighbor, warning them of the dark winter ahead. This attitude went a long way toward convincing people he could be trusted. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. The science of trustworthiness is complex, but it's a subject that has fascinated social neuroscientists for years. Research has identified three core components to trustworthiness, sincerity, competence, and reliability. Dr. Margie Worrell, a best-selling author who earned her PhD in human development and organizational change, said that sincerity ranks as particularly crucial to trust. In a 2015 Forbes article, she wrote, Sincerity relates directly to our assessment of someone's character, to their fundamental integrity. Of all three elements of trust, sincerity is the hardest to build and the most pivotal in our decision whether or not to place your trust in someone, and it's what we want, need, and expect from those who are in positions of formal leadership. By all accounts, sincerity came naturally to William. The appearance of integrity gave him a broad appeal, even as his words strayed from traditional Christian orthodoxy by setting a hard deadline for the apocalypse. Not everyone he spoke with accepted his message, but he managed to garner a fair amount of attention in the New York and Vermont region. Many nearby Baptist and Methodist preachers endorsed his views and encouraged their congregations to listen to his message. 
Even if they didn't always accept William's exact timeline, they were happy to have him come preach. After all, they did believe that the second coming would happen eventually, and William's urgent chronology gave people an incentive to embrace Jesus sooner rather than later. He also won endorsements at home. In 1833, William's local church issued him a license to preach. He felt so proud to receive this license that he carried it with him at all times. William now had more official authority to lend weight behind his words. He continued to make church appearances, but also went a step further. That same year, William published a pamphlet outlining his beliefs and began to distribute it to the public. The pamphlet proved so popular that Isaac Westcott, a Baptist preacher, asked to republish it as a book. This book was so well received, William published a second edition within two years. Between his sermons and his literature, William's ideas were taking root. He quickly became a hot commodity for congregations in New York and Vermont looking to energize their followers. He received a constant stream of mail from preachers inviting him to their churches. So much so that his son, William Jr., began acting as his secretary to keep track of all his engagements. William kept careful records of every lecture he gave. His notes indicate that between 1835 and 1837, he delivered sermons 68 times per year on average. Very likely, he routinely preached to audiences in the thousands. It's difficult to know exactly how many people adopted William's views. However, one pastor estimated that as many as 250 people from his parish alone were taken with William's message. And William drew in followers in churches all over Northeast America. He'd become a notable public figure with enough name recognition that his followers were known as Millerites. Pleased with his impact, William wrote, The Lord opens doors faster than I can fill them. But constant travel took a toll. William's marriage became somewhat strained due to his long weeks away from home. William's wife of over 30 years, Lucy, didn't seem to enjoy traveling and she often stayed home. This upset William. He bitterly complained to his son, if your mother does not come next week, I shall know she has no affection left. William's relationship problems weren't the only consequence of his new life. Traveling exhausted him and he frequently dealt with bouts of illness. In 1837, doctors diagnosed 55-year-old William with congestive heart failure, a condition that affects the heart's ability to pump blood and usually significantly shortens a person's life expectancy. But William now seemed too committed to his cause to allow his health problems to impede him. By that point, his prediction of the apocalypse was a mere six years away. He had to save as many souls as he could in that short amount of time. This endeavor, however, grew frustrating. Despite William's growing popularity, not enough people believed him, at least not in his estimation. He wanted to bring salvation to as many people as he could, millions if possible, but it didn't seem feasible for William to convince everyone. At that time, even a few of his children were skeptical. He wrote to his most faithful son, William, why will they not believe? Why will they not hear? Why not be wise? O oh God, do awaken those who are sleeping over the volcano of God's wrath. As William put his life on the line to spread his message, he grew increasingly sensitive to criticism. In late 1837, a Vermont Baptist preacher named Aaron Angier wrote an article in the Vermont Telegraph casting doubt on William's formula for decoding the Bible. 
Angier suggested it was hubristic for William to claim he knew the date of the end of the world, as God didn't even reveal the exact date to Jesus. William, in turn, warned naysayers like Aaron that they could potentially have the blood of souls on their hands if they led people away from the truth. The argument served as an early sign that William had no intention of capitulating to more established religious authority figures. When William first began preaching, he saw sin and evil as his enemies. Now it seems he began to view anyone who disagreed with him as a threat. He became disillusioned with the religious leaders around him. He felt they were more concerned with building their reputations than with saving souls. Luckily for William, he had a rising number of followers on his side. And very soon, that number would skyrocket. Up next, William meets the man who helps turn his ideology into a widespread phenomenon. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1839... 57-year-old William Miller was known throughout New York and Vermont as a compelling spiritual leader among evangelical Christians. With just four years left until his predicted apocalypse, William worked to expand his reach as much as possible. That spring, he traveled to Maine for a lecture series about the coming apocalypse. He established a good rapport with several preachers he met there, and in the fall, he embarked on another round of sermons in the region. While attending meetings in Exeter, New Hampshire, William got to know a 34-year-old pastor named Joshua Vaughn Himes. A progressive social reformer, Himes established roots in the anti-slavery, women's rights, and temperance movements. Outspoken about his beliefs, Himes never shrank away from saying what he thought, even if it meant being branded as a radical. As the pastor of Boston's Chardon Street Chapel, Himes seemed interested enough in William to invite the controversial preacher to come speak. William agreed, and in December, he arrived in Boston, 
and began a lecture series about the Second Coming. When William finished his sermons, Himes took him aside and asked him, Do you really believe this doctrine? William responded, Certainly I do, or I would not preach it. Himes saw the sincerity in Williams that others noted, but also noticed something else in William even more convincing, desperation. By this point, with his apocalyptic deadline looming, William had become frantic to win over new converts. So many souls were on the line, he wasn't sure how to reach more people, but he grew distressed that preaching from town to town wasn't enough. He came to the cynical conclusion that all those ministers who endorsed him were merely using him for his ability to draw a crowd. They felt he benefited their image, but didn't fully buy into the urgency of his message. William told Himes, they like to have me preach and build up their churches, and there it ends. I've been looking for help. I want help. Seeing William's despair, Himes couldn't help but feel moved. He wasn't sure he believed in the exact 1843 deadline, but he came away convinced that the apocalypse wasn't far off. He later wrote, It was at this time that I laid myself, family, society, reputation, all upon the altar of God to help him. Himes started by asking why William had only been preaching in small towns and villages in the Northeast. If he wanted to reach more souls, William should take his message to large cities. William explained that he only gave lectures by invitation. As of yet, no church in any major city had extended one, except Himes, of course. Right away, Himes sought to rectify that. More cities would follow, but new speaking events weren't Himes' only plan to spread William's message. He launched a full-court PR press. In March of 1840, Himes helped to finance and launch a new periodical in Boston called The Signs of the Times, dedicated to Millerite views. Then he launched more newspapers in other major cities, New York's The Midnight Cry, The Philadelphia Alarm, The Southern Midnight Cry in Washington, D.C., and one publication targeted to women, The Advent Message to the Daughters of Zion. Besides newspapers, Himes developed a series of religious tracts called Words of Warning. Each tract was printed on a single 5 by 8 sheet of paper, front and back. Himes printed hundreds of thousands of them, and even released French and German versions to cater to immigrant populations as well. Because of Himes' energized efforts, people all over America learned about William's message, and tens of thousands embraced it. As readership exploded, Himes began organizing regional conferences in cities across the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. He also recruited hundreds of colleagues, ministers, and pastors to preach William Miller's prophecies to their congregations. William welcomed Himes' drive and enthusiasm, but he also felt overwhelmed by it. He had his heart condition and faltering health. Now, instead of resting, he let his sense of duty rule. He took Himes' advice and began spreading his word in larger cities. In the summer of 1840, three years before the end of the world, he gave a lecture series in New York City. On top of his speaking schedule, writing kept him busy. At Himes' suggestion, William released a new edition of his book containing revised lectures and writings. Soon after, he also published a book of hymnals. These efforts were a major driving force for the movement. In January of 1841, college newspaper The Princeton Review reported that there were probably 10 times as many followers of Miller as there had been a decade earlier. 
With a broader audience listening to William's message, Himes felt that William could make an even more personal connection if he gave readers a face to go with his words. He wanted to promote William himself as the face of the most important movement of the era. Himes asked Boston artist W.M. Pryor to paint William's portrait. They then created a lithograph of the painting to accompany William's publications. In one fundraiser, they even sold copies of the lithograph to the public for 25 cents each, the equivalent of a little over $7.50 today. But William found it difficult to stay on top of his many new projects. At 58 years old, he felt worn and tired. He couldn't always keep up with Heim's brisk pace. He wrote in The Sign of the Times, I have more business on hand than two men like me could perform. As he grew increasingly busy, William didn't always answer letters. On one occasion, he even failed to show up for speaking engagements. Miscommunications caused by massive demand meant he was sometimes double booked. William's rigorous schedule didn't improve his already faltering health. In October of 1840, he became sick with typhoid, just before he was sent to attend a conference in Boston. Himes had to step in and lecture in his place. William eventually recovered from typhoid, but he had other recurring health problems, an uncomfortable skin condition that caused him to break out in rashes and boils plagued him. He regularly suffered from a cough and soreness. These ailments frequently kept him off the road, but time at home proved helpful to William and his marriage. While Heim stepped up to spread the message across America, William could stay home, rest, and commit himself to his immediate family and neighbors, those he hoped most to convert. He and Lucy had ten children, eight of whom survived to adulthood, and William succeeded in bringing them into the faith. Even as William went into retreat, he remained the driving force of the movement he created. When he suffered from illness, people all over Northeast America prayed for him, sent him encouraging letters, and even mailed him home remedies to try to cure his ails. Historians estimate that William had anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 followers, at a time when the total U.S. population was only around 17 million. These Millerites had come to admire William, even love him. For many of these devoted followers, reverence for William began to eclipse any loyalty they may have previously felt towards other religious authorities. But with the date of the apocalypse just about three years away, many religious leaders began to distance themselves from William. They were on board with the idea of the second coming, but they didn't want the deadline to be the main focus of their teachings. William, however, couldn't help but emphasize the shrinking time limit. William's singular focus alienated those who disagreed with him. William's local church in Lowhampton even fell into disarray because of the wide divide between those who accepted William's predictions and those who didn't. The betrayal of the Christians who wouldn't accept his message stung William. In the early 1840s, he became increasingly critical of other denominations and their leaders. He didn't tell his devotees to form a distinct sect, but they seemed to pick up on this message all the same. In 1843, a prominent Millerite follower named Charles Fitch began encouraging his peers to leave their old denominations behind and declare themselves part of a separate church. William remained silent on Fitch's proposal. However, by not decrying it, he appeared to endorse it. On the other hand, William's right-hand man, J.V. Himes, quickly latched on to Fitch's view. Himes wrote in the periodical The Advent Herald, 
it is death to remain connected with those bodies that speak lightly of or oppose the coming of the Lord. It is life to come out from all human tradition and stand upon the word of God and look daily for the appearance of the Lord. When Himes told readers to look daily for Jesus, he meant it. The year of William's prophecy had arrived. William Miller, J.B. Himes, and others truly believed that Jesus might appear at any moment. At the end of 1842, 60-year-old William released a statement naming a more specific timeline for the end. He said that Jesus would return between March 21, 1843 and March 21, 1844. This was to be Christ's second advent. Those who subscribed to this belief began calling themselves Adventists. From there, followers began to fixate on a variety of dates in the calendar. Some determined April 3rd to be the day, as they believed Jesus' crucifixion occurred on that day. The day of Pentecost in May and the autumnal equinox in September were also considered likely candidates for the last day on Earth. Even when those dates uneventfully passed, it didn't diminish the Millerites' faith at all. Plenty became even more fervent, to the point that outsiders began to take notice. Many felt it was highly irresponsible for William to make claims about the end of the world. They believed that he only spread ignorance and delusions. As the 1843 deadline fast approached, William's detractors felt obligated to be more vocal to try to dissuade any more fearful converts. Graham's Magazine, a fairly popular Philadelphia periodical, printed an article about the group in March of 1843. The author wrote in a derisive tone and compared William's creed to an April Fool's Day prank. Prominent abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison also derided the movement, despite the fact that many of its leaders were sympathetic to his anti-slavery cause. In his paper, Liberator, Garrison expressed astonishment that one illiterate though strong-minded man like Mr. Miller should in this enlightened age and country have succeeded in so short a space of time in enlisting such a multitude of converts. Garrison's summation of William wasn't particularly flattering or true. William may not have been formally educated, but he certainly could read. Still, Garrison's countless readers didn't know that, and a distorted view of William emerged. In March of 1843, right at the starting point of William's apocalypse time frame, Garrison took his derision a step further. He encouraged his readers to take comfort in the fact that the year would soon be over, and thus, the delusion has not long to run. William quickly scorned any critique. In one letter to his son, he railed against the press for circulating lies about him. As far as he was concerned, these attackers were engaged in the work of their master, the devil. As the media ramped up their mocking reports of Adventist beliefs, rumors and myths about the group took hold. One Rhode Island newspaper reported that Millerites wandered in fields wearing white ascension robes as they looked to the heavens in search of God. While that image became a popular legend associated with William and his following, there were no confirmed reports of that behavior. Despite the smear campaign, William and most of his followers clung tight to their convictions, even as time marched forward. Perhaps they held onto their beliefs even more tightly in response to criticism. The field of social identity explores how tight-knit groups, like the Millerites, react with hostility to criticism from outsiders. Lead author Matthew Hornsey of the University of Queensland discussed this in a 2009 paper. Hornsey wrote, 
criticisms made by an outgroup member are seen less factually correct than the same criticisms made by an in-group member. This implies that criticism from the outside can actually inhibit change as group members sink into a state of denial about problems they may otherwise be prepared to acknowledge. The more outsiders reproached the Millerites, the more the group dug in. In November of 1843, in the middle of William's time frame for the end of the world, Himes wrote, the virgins are truly waking up in every part of the country. The saints are lifting up their heads and looking up. The scoffers are raging and foaming out of their own shame. But the Lord is at the door. Himes' words echoed William's feelings. He knew without a doubt that the time had come. Up next, William reckons with failure. Now back to the story. By the end of 1843, 61-year-old William Miller waited out the end of the world. While in poor health, William had hoped that he'd live long enough to see the second coming of Jesus, followed by the cleansing of the earth by fire. By his estimation, the apocalypse would arrive sometime that year, although he admitted that it might come a few months later, by the spring of 1844. Even with this revised timeline, William felt disappointed when 1843 ended without incident. When his March 21, 1844 deadline passed, most of William's followers were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. They believed William when he told them that Jesus was still coming soon, even when he admitted that he must have miscalculated. One prominent Adventist, L.B. Coles, chalked it up to an incidental rather than a fundamental error. But William worried. He wrote to a friend, I thought before this time I should be with Jesus, yet here I am, a pilgrim and stranger, waiting for a change. Still, William tried to explain it away, both to himself and his followers. By examining the Jewish calendar in even more detail, he thought he might be able to provide a better timeline. He told followers, Never has my faith been stronger than at this very moment. I feel confident that the Savior will come, and in the true Jewish year. William calculated a new date for the second advent, which when converted from the Jewish calendar would occur on April 18, 1844. Soon that date passed as well. By early May, William felt bewildered. He wrote to his followers, I confess my error and acknowledge my disappointment. Yet I still believe that the day of the Lord is near, even at the door. William eventually settled on the explanation that God delayed the end to give people more time to repent. Many of his followers seemed to accept this. Others likely drifted away from Millerism, although there's no hard data on the exact numbers. While many Millerites stayed faithful, a few decided to conduct research, hoping to find an explanation for the wait. Samuel S. Snow embarked on a thorough study of the Bible, much like William had back in 1816. After reading through the scripture and applying his own convoluted calculations, Snow concluded that the apocalypse would occur on October 22, 1844. He presented his conclusion at an Adventist meeting in Exeter, New Hampshire in August of 1844. His theory took the participants by storm. When word of it got back to leaders like William and Himes, they were impressed. After some consideration, William seemed relieved for a chance to save face, and he fully embraced the new date as an extension of his views. 
Whereas he'd previously been vaguer, giving his followers a months-long range for the end of the world, William now accepted October 22nd as the settled date for the Second Coming. On October 6th, William wrote ecstatically, Let Brother Snow be blessed for his instrumentality in opening my eyes. I am almost home. Glory, glory, glory. I see that the time is correct. My doubts and fears and darkness are all gone. In the last few weeks of October, as many as 100,000 Millerites once again prepared for the end. Newspapers reported that many stopped working. Some decided it was a waste of time to harvest their crops. Others, who had been convinced that the world would end the previous spring, had failed to plant crops altogether. The New York Evangelist reported that some believers gave away or sold off their possessions, their furniture, their houses, and investments. They opened the doors to their shops and told passers-by to help themselves to the merchandise. They began the process of completely separating themselves from the earthly plane. William seemed to take a more moderate approach. Though he claimed all his doubts had been erased, he continued his life as normal. He didn't sell his farm or his possessions. Perhaps in the back of his mind, some of his old skepticism remained. If he did feel conflicted, he kept it to himself. He let everyone know that he eagerly anticipated the 22nd. Just before the date, Himes traveled to Lowhampton to be with his mentor at the end. They gathered at the Lowhampton farmhouse where William had lived for much of the last three decades. William surrounded himself with his wife, his children, their families, and neighbors. Although William's group waited all day and into the night, no one ascended. When the final October 22nd prediction came to nothing, Millerites were devastated. One prominent Millerite named Hiram Edson wrote, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. The mainstream media, on the other hand, made the most of the group's ill-fated vigil. As the Baltimore Sun reported on October 25th, the Millerites kept it up all night before last, and yesterday they went to bed. Their public haunts are silent as the grave. For a month after the 22nd, William Miller made no public statements about his failed prediction. Other Millerite leaders, like Himes, printed apologies in his newspapers. William, though, seemed unsure of how to confront his devastating failure. By December, he had accepted that he must have miscalculated. He realized it might be impossible to decode the exact date of the apocalypse. But he tried to find a silver lining, a lesson he could discern from the heartbreak of being wrong. In a letter to a friend, he wrote that he had been waiting impatiently for Christ to come. Now it was time for him to learn to submit to the will of God and master the art of patience. After what became known as the October Disappointment, some Millerites left the movement, but many thousands stayed. They came up with various justifications for themselves as to why the world didn't end, rather than abandon their faith. This kind of cognitive dissonance has been observed more than once in doomsday cults. Cognitive psychologist Leon Festinger coined the phrase in the 1950s. According to Festinger, people experience extreme discomfort when they encounter two contradictory beliefs. When confronted with this contradiction, people do anything in their power to try to make the two ideas consistent. 
Festinger developed his theories while studying a UFO cult called the Seekers. Like the Millerites, the Seekers also believed in a coming apocalypse, even after their claims were proved false. In his book, When Prophecy Fails, Festinger wrote about the dissonance that occurs when reality conflicts with people's beliefs. He wrote, Frequently, the behavioral commitment to the belief system is so strong, it may be less painful to tolerate the dissonance than to discard the belief and admit one had been wrong. More than a century before Festinger wrote about his cognitive dissonance theories, the Millerites proved it. Some followers developed a new philosophy that Jesus had returned on the 22nd, but only in spirit. Upon this spiritual return, Christ had taken the opportunity to separate the souls of the true Christians from the souls damned. Henceforth, only the saved would get to go to heaven. For everybody else, whether living, dead, or not yet born, it was too late. For a while, this theory drew William in. It would at least mean that some significant deadline had passed, even if it wasn't the dramatic second coming that he had envisioned. But in the end, J.V. Himes convinced William to reject the idea. Himes felt if the door to heaven had already closed, then there wasn't a need to continue trying to convert people. Himes could stop his evangelical work, but he didn't want to give it up. He devoted everything to William Miller's movement, and despite the disappointment, Himes seemed reluctant to let it go. He confidently felt that William's movement could continue in some form, even if they gave up preaching a hard date for the end of the world. His instincts proved correct. The Adventist movement did continue, even as followers grappled with the October disappointment. But it evolved mostly without William Miller. In August of 1845, William published a book entitled Apology and Defense, in which he tried to justify his views and explain how he came about them. He wrote, that I have been mistaken in time, I freely confess. After making this confession, William told readers he had no regrets. His motives had been pure. He believed his fellow man to be in danger, and he felt obligated to warn them. But although he wasn't ashamed, he announced that it was time for him to step aside. In his book, he wrote, My labors are principally ended. I shall leave to my younger brethren the task of contending for the truth. Many years I toiled alone. God has now raised up those who will fill my place. I shall not cease to pray for the spread of truth." Leaders like Himes and others began to craft the Advent Christian Church, which is still active today. They continue to preach the imminent second coming of Christ, though they have declined to set an exact date. But while William's work lived on, he spent the remainder of his life secluded on his farm. He had already been in poor health with congestive heart failure in the years leading up to the October disappointment, and his body continued to decline. As death approached, his only sorrow was that he couldn't live to see the day of Jesus' return. But to the last, he remained convinced as ever that the time was coming, one day. He hoped his warning would be remembered. He prayed that the world would ready itself for annihilation. On December 20th, 1849, five years after the October disappointment, 67-year-old William Miller's ailing body finally failed him. He died surrounded by family and friends, including J.V. Himes.
Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on William Miller, among the many sources we used, we found the book God's Strange Work by David L. Rowe, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we are uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.